today on Edge Effects. But what we could see happening, how the ship became something larger than itself. It really outgrew itself and it became the flagship species of one of, I think, the best orchestrated global environmental justice campaigns in history. Dr. Paul Sutter, Professor of Environmental History at the University of Colorado Boulder and series editor at Weyerhaeuser Environmental Books, speaks with Dr. Simone Mueller, the DFG Heisenberg Professor for Global Environmental History and Environmental Humanities at Augsburg University. Dr. Mueller is also the author of The Toxic Ship, The Voyage of the Cayenne Sea and the Global Waste Trade, which is the topic of today's conversation. All right, you ready to dive in? Yes. Good to see you, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful to see you. Well, let's just dive right in. So we first met, I think, in 2016 at the Rachel Carson Center when you had just begun this big project there titled Hazardous Travels, Ghost Acres, and the Global Waste Economy. Could you tell us a little bit about that project and then how you decided to focus on the Cayenne Sea to tell that story? Yeah. So in 2016, I was lucky to get a research grant from the German Research Foundation that allowed me to build up a group with three doctoral students to work together with me on the global waste economy. And we were particularly interested in seeing hazardous material cross borders in various ways. Um, so it's actual waste in the form of outdated ships that are going to die in India, in the form of the export of dirty industry, as in the case of Ecuador and oil drilling through an American-based multinational company, or really the border crossing of hazardous waste material. Because we were fascinated by a system that emerged around or parallel with the modern environmental movement in the 1970s, and that is the trade in hazardous waste material. And so as global environmental historians, we each worked on different world regions. So we had a project on the inter-German waste trade between the two Germanies from the 1970s until reunification project set in Ecuador, the indigenous part of the Amazon forest and Texas oil drilling, a project set in India, where you have the breaking of, of outdated ships from the industrial countries, and then my own project that took the United States perspective in the world, focused on the U.S. as both one of the biggest, if not that biggest, producer of hazardous waste material, and also one of the most important and biggest player in the global waste economy. Yeah, and so you focused on the Cayenne Sea in particular, and I wonder if you could just give us a sort of an overview of the ship's journey, because that's such a, an essential part of your book. The ship really has a fascinating voyage to relate to. So you have to imagine a ship that leaves Philadelphia in the fall of 1986, and it's loaded with about 15,000 tons of incinerator ash. And then it spends about two years or more than two years roaming the world's oceans, trying to find a place that is willing to import its cargo. And it sets out under the premises of actually going to the Bahamas and then disposing of the material, the cargo there. But then the issue is one actor after the other 
in that transaction, in that waste transaction, pulls out. And so they are short of importers. And so what we end up seeing is how that ship first was around the Caribbean, the Greater Caribbean. It tries to get back to Philadelphia, but then also the city says, no, you can't dock here. And then from Philadelphia, it crosses the Atlantic in a spectacular flight. So by that time of the story, the captain just takes or seems to take the story into his own hands. So he is escaping the U.S. Coast Guard. He's escaping environmentalists who by that time are also trying to follow the ship and just takes it across the Atlantic into first docking in several countries, Western Africa, and then into the Mediterranean trying to get rid of it in what was then Yugoslavia, also failing here through the Suez Canal, touring a little bit of Southeast Asia, before eventually, more than two years later, after the ship had left Philadelphia, it appears in Singapore and its hulls are empty. And midway through, we also see the ship changing names from the Kalian Sea to the Felicia, to the Palicano, and eventually it becomes the San Antonio. Because it becomes like over the two years, it becomes like a cat and mouse game between on the one hand, the captain and the crew and the waste traders in the background trying to get rid of the cargo. And on the other hand, US officials, the Coast Guard, who said, you're, you're on a renegade ship. And most important of all, environmental activists. And Given that that story plays out prior to the internet, so there's no way that you can go and Google where the ship is, has it landed in this and that port, but you really have to do it the old-fashioned way. You have to call the harbor and then see if they if they have shipping lists. Um, and only when the ship actually docks, that's when you can trace it. It's such a fascinating story. And um, I think one of the things the book does really well is really give us a contextualized history in each of the key places that it stops. And it's a fascinating story. So at root of the story is a garbage crisis or a waste crisis in the United States. What was going on that made it increasingly difficult for cities to find places to dump their urban waste? And then what were the specific conditions in Philadelphia that led city leaders to need to export this incinerator ash? Let me start by saying, like, there's this thing about Philadelphia going back to its history as the, the foundational city of the United States. And so the, this idea of Philadelphia as a city upon a hill, that was in no way true when it comes to the way story. So Philadelphia was no exception, but rather the rule it was one of the many cities that we have in the United States in the 1970s and 1980s struggling to make ends meet when it comes to waste disposal. And some of the, the structural problems that we had underlying this is, first of all, the rise of modern environmentalism. So more and more citizens in the urban realm that become aware of disposal sites in their midst, of the hazardous effects of incinerators in neighborhoods. And so there's growing citizen activism, grassroots activism against waste siting in neighborhoods. And that's also what we see happening in Philadelphia. I mean, Philadelphia is important for that citizen activism also because its NGOs are actually the first ones to push through the right to know that later on then also becomes part of U.S. national legislation so that citizens have the right to know what industries do in their, in their neighborhoods. 
So that is one factor. People become much more aware of their proximity to potentially dangerous hazardous material. Connected to that is the problem of where else should it go? Even if you're incinerating waste, you're reducing the amount, you're reducing the quantity, but you still have rising amounts of waste in the U.S. And incinerated ash also needs to go somewhere. But at the same time, you have more and more communities that are just not willing to put up with waste sites in their midst. And so you, in that spacious country that the United States is, you're in this absurd situation where a lot of communities are actually running out of space where to dump their waste. And here is one bit that's characteristic for Philadelphia that's unique for Philadelphia, because in Philadelphia, city and county are congress. So there actually is within the city county limits. Philadelphia does not have like a backyard to dump, right? But it immediately one, once it starts dumping or once it starts disposing of its waste, it already crosses borders. So for decades, Philadelphia would cross the border into New Jersey or into other counties surrounding it. So it was always depending on the, the willingness of other communities to take its waste. And I think that really is the part that then triggered the decision within the city council of Philadelphia to say, well, we're already going across borders and we're running out of space. I mean, New Jersey was really, really strict on saying, like, we're no longer taking Philadelphia waste. And so in the midst of the crisis, that was when the decision was made, well, why not export it across national borders? Yeah. And it, I mean, it strikes me, too, that several other things going on. One is the prohibition on ocean dumping. So one of the traditional ways people had gotten rid of their waste was done away with. The other is increasing regulations on sanitary landfills make it harder to dispose of waste. Weirdly, the very successes of environmental regulation has sort of propelled the story. There's a deep irony here, of course, because Philadelphia, which is a city that has a disproportionately Black population, I think a Black mayor during this time too, dealing with its own environmental justice issues, ends up, for the reasons you've just explained, foisting its waste on the rest of the world. It sort of transfers this environmental justice story out into the Caribbean and then globally. And that was really what fascinated me most about the example of Philadelphia, that oftentimes you come to studies or studying environmental justice with a very neat and clear-cut binary understanding of those are the good guys and those are the bad guys. But Philadelphia just shows how complicated and complex the situation in reality is. And that the city can't be villainized for being like they're the bad guys who wanted to do harm onto Caribbean nations. That's just too too easy of a storyline. And Philadelphia really shows how complex and complicated the story is and how it's more for lack of opportunities that they come up with it. Also because, and I think that's important when we talk about the global waste economy, it's not necessarily a, a dumping. I'm, I'm always struggling with the term dumping because it, it makes it sound as if somebody comes with a ship and then they just dump it onto someone else's territory. But in reality, you need an import partner. You always need somebody on the importing side that signs off on the deal. Yeah. There are two, two sides to the story that also agree on the deal. In your discussion of the ship, you know, you did a beautiful job of explaining how it moved around the world and sort of evaded capture and evaded environmental protest. 
But the other interesting thing about it is that the waste within its hull also changes in its definition as it moves from place to place. And so as it goes to Latin America and the Caribbean and Africa, could you speak a little bit more about how those who were trying to get rid of the waste pitched it as a resource to those import countries? So the global waste economy works. The mobility of the waste is intricately linked to the mutability of the concept of what hazardous waste is. So what we see, you just talked about the rise of modern environmentalism and how the global waste economy is actually the downside of that success story. And that's what we really see here, because with modern environmentalism, what we have is the territorialization of environmental governance and an environmental justice. So all the rules, all the wonderful rules that the United States has set up for its hazardous waste are strictly territorial for the US. They do not count for the Caribbean, for Africa or for other countries. I mean, this is a complicated discussions on nation sovereignty when it comes to environmental governance. But what then ends up being the situation in the 1970s is that you have a patchwork of different definitions of what material constitutes waste, constitutes sometimes constitutes hazardous waste. So very few countries in the 1970s and 1980s actually do have a regulation that defines what hazardous waste is. Most of their countries in the majority world do not. And so that is what gives traders an easy way in and a legal way in to redefine the material. So that's something like Incinerator ash coming from Philadelphia, coming from the US, can be classified there as hazardous waste. And once it crosses into the Bahamas, it can be framed as fill material for wetlands to reclaim lands and then use it as commercial grounds to build something. Or is oftentimes incinerator ash would be used, you mix it with cement and then you make bricks from it. That's another thing that they tried, particularly in, in Western Africa. Or you can mix it with soil and then use it as a fertilizer for the fields. I mean, these are all applications that we, in the past, prior to, to this, have seen happening in both industrial countries and also the majority world, that you would use it for building, that you would use it for reclaiming lands, and you would use it for fertilizer. The question then is, incinerated ash is not incinerated ash. It always depends on what you incinerate. And depending on that, the, the end result may be hazardous waste, or it may not be hazardous waste. It all depends on the combination of what you burn, because in the process of burning, you end up with dioxins and furans, and you end up in a condensation um, of heavy metals in it. Was the incinerator ash in the holds of the Kyan Sea toxic? Did it qualify as toxic waste? One of the things the book shows so neatly is how complicated a question that was and how effectively it changed as the waste moved into different places with different regulatory regimes. So could you speak a little bit to this question of toxicity and, and even more broadly, the construction of toxicological knowledge that's at the center of your story? Pauling the ship and its cargo, and also following the definitions of how it changes from its hazardous waste to non-hazardous waste is absolutely fascinating because it tells us so much about 
the role of signs and notions of credibility, how much trust we put into science, scientific institutions, and also how sometimes it doesn't matter whether an institution comes up with a certificate saying like this material is toxic waste or it's not. To tease out a bit what I mean by that, one of my favorite quotes on the material was the ash on board the Cayenne wasn't only the most tested, but also the most contested ash in the world. And that hinges on, on the act that throughout the two years journey, it's been tested by different U.S. institutions, by other laboratories that Greenpeace hired, that other NGOs hired, that the waste traders hired at least eight different times. Because when you export, the, the traders, you're obviously, they need a certificate that says it's this or it's that, it's hazardous waste or it's not hazardous waste. And because starting in the 60s and into the 70s, um, Philadelphia has had issues with its incinerator ash and with citizens rallying against the perceived toxicity of it. There's already been quite regular testing of the incinerators in the city. So the ash leaves Philadelphia with a certificate by the EPA and also by the Federal Department of Environment Protection, both saying it's non-toxic. And with that, it reaches the Bahamas. And the trouble here is asking, in what context is it non-toxic hazardous waste? So obviously, the U.S. institutions are testing the material with a disposal site in mind that's a sanitary landfill. But the, the waste traders, they were trying to sell it to the Bahamas to be used as material to be dumped in wetlands with no protection layers around it. It would go straight into the marshes. It would straight go into the water. And obviously here, that use of the ash makes it a very, very different story if you consider this material to be harmful. And this is also where then we have a debate uh, erupting within the U.S. EPA with the, the EPA Inspector General teasing out, listen, according to our standards, it may be non-hazardous waste, but if you want to put it in a wetland, this material is very harmful because it can go right into the water cycle and hear the system. Whereas on the other side, the offices within the EPA that were responsible for the testings that will, were testing according to our standards and that say incinerated ash in the U.S. is going to a landfill, a sanitary landfill. With this wrestle going on within the EPA, it was really, really hard for the receiving or the potential importing countries to make sense of it. Also because at the time, ecotoxicology is... A science that's only rising and it's only in the 1980s that laboratories can test for parts per trillion. So for the tests, many of the potential receiving countries in the greater Caribbean, they actually don't have the, the scientific infrastructure to go and test for themselves. So they always need to go back, fall back on the option to find a laboratory in the US or in the UK to have the ash tested. The third player that you have in there to make the story even more complicated is Greenpeace and environmental activist groups, both on the, on the local level in the importing countries and then internationally, who are very focused on assessing the material in the context of where it's supposed to go. So not thinking according to, well, 
if it ends up in a sanitary landfill in the US because they say, well, it doesn't. It's going to go into a wetland. And so they're the ones making governments aware that in the context of a wetland, this material is absolutely in the wrong place. There seems also, I mean, I think particularly the Haiti part of your story, where there's suspicion of U.S. science and whether U.S. scientists and science can be trusted. There are lots of rumors uh, swirling about in terms of the nature of this waste. feels like in Haiti, that story really kind of blows up a little bit. Absolutely. And I think that also goes back to toxicity as such, or toxic particles or chemicals. With hazardous waste, it's not that you eat it and you die. Oftentimes you can't see it, you can't smell it, you don't know how it enters your body. So there's a lot of not seeing it, not seeing the danger, not being able to really evaluate the risk. Um, That's on the one hand. And what we see happening in, in Haiti is once that sends up not exactly knowing where the toxicant is or what it is, what it does, with distrust towards U.S. institutions, the situation really ended up blowing up. And for this book, I also did interviews um, with people from the time. And one of the interviews I did with a Greenpeace activist who actually then went down to Haiti to test the ash. Once Greenpeace activists knew that part of the ash had ended up there, they went down to test it and they had this press conference and they said they felt they actually had to downplay the danger because for all that mattered, he says it could have been it could have been nuclear. He really felt that there was such a tension in the air, there was riot in the air, and they were worried that the situation would completely get out of hands. So you have Greenpeace activists who are actually trying to calm people down over that environmental burden. And I was really struck in the story about community resistance in general. It seems like something happens with the Cayenne and its voyage that raises the hackle of receiving countries and their citizens that leads to effectively a, a movement in the global south to begin to monitor and regulate, and in some cases prohibit, the export from developed world countries of their waste and particularly their hazardous waste. So I'm, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the sort of the emergence of that resistance in these different places and how it led to those critical conventions later to for the international control of this trade. One of the things that really fascinated me about the C is how it's atypical for the hazardous waste transactions that were going on in the system. So of all the transactions that we have documented, um, the cliency with its incinerator ash, 15,000 tons is not a whole lot. And it's also not the most toxic transaction that you could witness going on at the time. But what we could see happening, how the ship became something larger than itself. It really outgrew itself and it became the flagship species of one of, I think, the best orchestrated global environmental justice campaigns in history. Here you could really see how cleverly environmental activists were then employing the story of the Cayenne And I mean, it did make for an amazing story. You have a ship on the flight, you have a ship that's changing names, that's really like the Flying Dutchman. Every now and then it reappears just in the right timing so that people still vaguely remember, oh, there was something about a ship like 
two months ago and oh where's the ship now so it was a, a perfect news story and it also was the perfect storyboard because on the one hand you had the united states like the most powerful country of the world at the time and on the other hand you had haiti the poorest country in the world at the time and in the midst of that is this waste transaction and you could so easily turn it into a storyboard that was talking about right and wrong, almost David against Goliath. And with that storyline, first the media in the US, um, particularly like the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News, but then also environmental activist groups with Greenpeace on the forefront, took that ship and made it the flagship species of their campaign. And at the time they were already campaigning against incinerators, so it was an easy shift to make from incinerators to the global waste trade. Also because other Greenpeace chapters throughout the world, particularly the ones in Europe, were noticing um, the similar or the same transactions with ships from the European countries, primarily going to Africa. And with that background, they decided, okay, let's let's launch the big campaign and it was fortunate time and timing also because you had the end of the Cold War or leaning towards the end of the Cold War. So there's political space to maneuver. You had Bush Sr. running for US president, trying to outdo himself as a green president. And so there was favor for environmental topics, also climbing on the national level in the US. And you had in the background of it, a lot of international institutions, and not only the United Nations, but something as bizarre at first sight, like NATO, also thinking about waste as a global problem. And so here that really created the perfect stage for, for the ship to make an entry to then push an international governance framework through the policy process of the United Nations that then ended up as the Basel Convention on the Transboundary Movement of Hazardous Waste and its Disposal. Can you tell us a little about what that convention, how it set up the regulations? So it's one of the, if not the key United Nations framework um, when it comes to waste, um, transborder waste disposal and waste trade. It was open for signature in 1989 and already in 1992, it was ratified by enough member states of the UN to become the regulatory framework to work with globally. And there are a lot of good things to say about the Basel Convention, so I'm going to start with those. It's a key convention that named the problem, that defined the problem, and that through the Basel Convention, what we see happening is that we get more and more of a, of a streamlined notion of what hazardous waste is. Because the member states of the United Nations and then also of the Basel Convention, they're forced to define what hazardous waste means in their respective countries. So a lot of countries from the majority world start defining or figuring out, oh, yes, there actually is something like hazardous waste, and we need to define it through our constitutions and regulations. So that's kind of the positive side that we can assign to this governance framework. The downside of it is that the two main players in the story of the KNC did not join. 
So neither Haiti nor the United States are part of the Basel Convention. Yeah. While for Haiti, it's not the biggest importer nor the biggest exporter of hazardous waste, but the U.S. is. And for such a big player to remain outside of that framework is really problematic. And so what we would see also because of that is that it's a tiger without teeth. And why did the U.S. remain outside of that? Well, for the U.S., it, it wasn't necessarily that they were against the rules set up by the convention. U.S. diplomats were actually very, very successful during all the, the meetings leading up to the final Basel meeting in getting the convention written in the way that it would benefit the United States. But their problem is one that they have with any UN governance framework, and that is if you join, you have to make sure that your own national rules are in line with what the United Nations framework says. And that was a deal that the US didn't or couldn't get it to work out because it would mean like, yes, we need to change recrowds of the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, but we also need to change federal laws. And here that's where it gets messy. Because the U.S. government didn't want to have the United Nations override federal laws. The states weren't really keen on responding to what the Basel Convention wanted, also because they had different definitions of what waste is, what hazardous waste is, should diluted dishwasher water be included, yes or no. Probably the most important points in it was that for the U.S., they already had two bilateral agreements with Canada and with Mexico that also would have had to be changed. And those actually are, to this day, the greatest importers of U.S. hazardous waste on an international scale. And so for a lot of politicians, I think it felt like, well, we we have something in place. It's very complicated. We're going to get in trouble with the federal states. Why should we go through this? One of the things that really struck me in the book is when I think of the foisting of wastes onto lesser developed countries, I don't think of it as trade, um, but that's exactly what it was. And wrapped up in that was a sense of national sovereignty and the capacity of nations to enter into trade relationships on their own terms, which I recall that the United States was also, also bristled a little bit at the implications for sovereignty in this convention. Yeah, and we see this in the summer of 1988 with the currency out at sea for almost a year and a half. Nobody knows where the ship is, but there are huge, tremendous diplomatic repercussions with Panama, with the Bahamas, with the entire Greater Caribbean, Haiti. So there's this one big meeting in, in the House of Representatives. One of the subcommittees really think takes the export of U.S waste to hard and wants to think through the whole policy and what could be changed or needs to be changed. And here we see two positions really fundamentally at odds with each other. And one is the one based in or grounded in human rights, universal human rights. Why should a regulation that defines material as hazardous, as toxic, why should that be territorialized to only count for U.S. citizens, if we're all the same human beings. So that was the one position. But the stronger position on the other side was one concerned about national sovereignty, and not sovereignty of the United States, but the trading partners. Because they said, well, if we're 
saying that any kind of material that we define as hazardous waste or as outdated pesticides that we take up the market, that those rules and regulations also need to be in place and with the importing country who are actually writing their environmental laws. And that was where they felt like that's where we can't go. It's a very technical legal discussion that we had going on here, and it certainly wasn't factoring in how some of the countries or many of the countries in this unequal trade relationship simply did not have a choice. It's a legal trade that wraps itself around global inequalities that then end up as global environmental racism. Let's talk about that because the United States has a huge environmental justice literature, but so much of that literature seems to reside within the bounds of the United States. And I think one of the innovative things about the toxic ship is the way in which you take this story in transnational directions. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how seeing this in a transnational or global scope changes how we might think about the issue of environmental injustice. It really goes back to the two positions that I just outlined of, is it a legal trade? And are we thinking about nations and nation states and sovereignty? Or are we presuming that they're universal human rights, one of which then needs to be the right to a clean and healthy environment? I feel environmental justice has done a lot of work to actually tease out or to go the the civil rights route. I mean, that's scholarly also where we see a lot of national activists coming from to to think about civil rights and what that means and non-discriminatory disposal of hazardous waste or also the situatedness of dirty industries in particular communities. But interestingly, they have done little to take those discussions that oftentimes are really pivoting the notion of are there universal rights, uh, universal civil rights, versus something like that could almost be framed as separate but equal onto a global scale. And I feel like that's what we see very much also once we start globalizing environmental justice, that this is really the discussion that we have. Are we planetarizing modern environmentalism to the degree that we're no longer territorializing environmental protection? Then we need to base it onto universal human rights. Or are we going more about of a global separate but equal, where every nation state in the end is allowed to make its own decisions and how it wants to protect its citizens. The phrases that get used a lot, both by you and by some of your actors, are garbage imperialism or garbage colonialism. And that in the United States frame, we don't think much about colonialism or imperialism, but this certainly, these are questions raised by receiving nations when they feel like they're being unfairly treated. And what I also found fascinating is how you can take a map of colonial trading routes and then you can take a map that sketches out the, the waste trading routes of 100, 150, 200 years later. And you see how there is a similar or path dependency. So the European nations, they would use the, the trading connections that they already have. I mean, that's where the path dependency goes because you need an importer, so you need trading connections. And you can see how the waste trade built upon those old 
historic trading connections, European countries dumping in their former colonies of Africa, and the United States like first turning to the Caribbean as its long-established backyard through foreign policies since the late 19th century. And that, that really is then what triggers this notion of garbage imperialism. Another quote that I loved was one of the actors saying, well, the hazardous waste trade is just a recolonization of the world through trash. Because they too, they witnessed, they, they looked at it and it's like, hang on, those are just the same routes. So in your book, you give us the story of the global hazardous waste trade through the Kyan Sea and its journey. And that makes for a wonderful sort of narrative through line that, that allows you to, to hang a lot of very complex history onto the story. But I wonder how representative was the journey of the Kyan Sea? You talk about a few other ships in there, but maybe you could talk about the Kyan Sea's journey in relationship to that the broader trade as a whole. See, I think that... The ship is very representative in terms of the topics or the issues that it raises. Unequal trading partners, the the push factors of modern environmentalism being in place, strict environmental regulations and legislations in one country leading rather to the externalization of the hazards rather than internalizing it and disposing of it cheaply. And that is something that we see happening not only in the U.S., but for instance, when we look at another project that we had in the Hazardous Travels Research Group that looked at the inter-German waste trade, it's almost it's exactly the same. During German partition, you had West Berlin with almost the same problem as Philadelphia. So you have a city that has very, very little space for disposal sites, um, for incinerators, and so almost simultaneously in the 1970s and 1973, they enter into um, a trade agreement with the GDR. And at the beginning, it really is just seven kilometers outside of Berlin. You have this corridor and just seven kilometers outside of the city on GDR territory. There's, they set up this one waste dump that's just for Berlin waste. And eventually that system becomes bigger and bigger. By the late 1980s, seven different facilities that not only take Berlin, West Berlin waste, but West German waste and also other West um, Western European countries using the GDR as a, as a cheap disposal and dumping ground. And so you can see that that kind of waste colonialism also was going on in other countries. The currency allows to tease out the structures and dynamics of the global waste economy actually very clearly. Where it's unique is, is because it becomes such an icon of the campaign. I'd love to hear where you think scholarship in this area should go from here. What sort of new studies do we need? So there are actually two avenues that I see opening up. One is in research and one is more transdisciplinary of history informing politics. I think one of the, the frustrations that stayed with me working on the global waste economy is how you seem to always fall back onto out of out of sight, out of mind. And that practice of communities always trying to get rid of it, putting it elsewhere without thinking about where. And the whole discussion around waste and disposal oftentimes falls back onto 
Um, we need more recycling. We need a circular economy. So all those end of pipe solutions, rather than focusing on the one hand on how should production be differently organized. But I think for a historian or for a scholar in the environmental humanities, another really, really pressing question is while we're waiting for solutions, technical solutions or social solutions that cover the whole stream, people are living with contaminated land or in contaminated landscapes with hazardous waste material right in their midst. Cleaning up doesn't work because if you clean up sites, that contaminated soil has to go somewhere. Waste is very spacious. It needs a place to be put. And so discussions should focus rather on how communities make do with the waste in their midst. And these are practices that are already going on and then have gone, been going on for, for decades. I think that's where I would want to see scholarship moving to work more around what I call the toxic commons. So the increasing contamination of our common pool resources and how people live with it. And then I think it could be very productive to then also link this to environmental justice. What does it take for those communities, not only to live with it, but for all of us to find ways to live in a just way with it, to take responsibility with it? Part of the scholarship, when we look towards nuclear waste, I feel like that's already what they do. Stories around decommissioning, finding the ultimate dumping ground for radioactive waste. But there are so many contaminants around that are connected to the same issue. And I feel like that's that's a field that's not played yet. So I would love to see many, many, many scholars move into that direction. Another issue that's on the table now is how much the humanities should actually inform, where I, I think there's a need for the humanities to inform international governance. At the moment, the United Nations is in a process of setting up the chemical IPCC. So it's going to be just like the IPCC for climate change. So they want to set up a panel with very many different experts who work on contamination and toxicity to then do a survey of the literature, do a survey of the science that's out there, and then advise the nations and advise the United Nations on how to move forward. If I've learned one thing about waste and toxicity from working with it, is that it's not technical. And I think the story of the C really shows us neatly with that discussion of, is the ash contaminated or is it toxic? Is it not toxic? You need the humanities in there to explain how those narratives shift and change and how much it depends on a sociocultural context to understand how people deal with it. So I very much hope that the decision will fall, that also humanities people will be included in that panel. That's great. And a, and a great place to end our conversation. Thanks so much, Simone. Great to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Paul. It's been a pleasure. That was Paul Sutter in conversation with Simone Mueller. 
Paul is a professor of environmental history at the University of Colorado Boulder and a series editor at Weyerhaeuser Environmental Books. Simone is the DFG Heisenberg Professor for Global Environmental History and Environmental Humanities at Augsburg University in Germany. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Wei-Shen Liu and me, Bree Meyer. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeEffectsMag, or find us online at edgeeffects.net.